0: environmental,
1: conversations,
0: on creative arts, scholarship, and teaching. This, this is, is EcoCast. ECOCAST. Hello and welcome to ECOCAST, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and the Environment. I'm Lindsay Jolivet,
1: And I'm Brandon Golm.
0: And thank you for joining us for another episode. Today, we will be talking about the absolutely fascinating history of whaling in the U.S. We have Jamie L. Jones with us today to discuss her new book, The Afterlife of the U.S. Whaling in the Petroleum Age. Jamie is an assistant professor in the Department of English at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She earned her Ph.D. in American Studies at Harvard University, and her research explores the historic pivot in energy use in the 19th century, when whale oil and other organic energy sources gave way to fossil fuels. She has work published in American Art, Configurations, and Commonplace, and her research has been supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Smithsonian American Art Museum, and the Whiting Foundation, as well as John Carter Brown Library, and others. So we're so excited to have Jamie with us today to discuss this book. Welcome, Jamie.
1: Thank you you so much for having me. Yeah, we're very excited.
0: Yes, and so... Today, instead of doing a piece of folklore, I'm actually going to go back to the roots of EcoCast, haha, <laughs> and do a root word, um, because Jamie's book discusses a lot of really fascinating words and delves into kind of word meaning. So we're going to go with one that's in the book that I'm actually going to read an excerpt from Jamie's book um, to bring our attention to the importance and versatility of the word render. So to render, quote means to break or boil down animal bodies, the process at the heart of the U.S. whaling industry. Whale bodies were rendered into oil. Rendering also means making a copy, an image, or a reproduction of something. The rendering of texts, images, and artifacts from and about the U.S. whaling industry to a wide public was also one of the industry's central processes before and after its decline, end quote. I will also bring into this sort of definition that Jamie gives us from her book, the to be rendered obsolete is a thing we say quite often in English, which is also part of Jamie's book is this obsolescence. So hopefully we'll talk about that today as well. And so I'm going to turn it over to Jamie now so she can introduce her own work.
2: Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. I will tell you a little bit about the book. So the book is about the massive energy transitions of the 19th century in the U.S., The energy historian Christopher Jones, I think, has made a really helpful description of how energy regimes changed in the 19th century. He described the way that an energy regime predicated on organic energy sources gave way to one predicated on mineral energy sources, which means roughly that there was a time when folks used as fuel organic energy sources like whale oil, which is relevant for me, but also beef tallow, and animal and human muscle energy, and that life and work radically changed when fossil fuel energy sources like coal, oil, and gas came into really, really wide circulation and the extraction of those sources really exploded. And that happened in the 19th century. So, I am not telling the story of those fossil fuels uh, exactly in the book Rendered Obsolete. I'm really interested in what happens to those old energy resources as uh, new fossil fuels really come online as the main mm. source of energy in the 19th century. Okay. I want to know what happened when, or what happens in general when things become obsolete, because as mm-hmm. we know, um, things that, go, that are obsolete don't disappear. Uh, things that are obsolete still stick around and I would argue perform a really important kind of cultural work. They, things that are obsolete still continue to exert force in culture, imagination, industry, labor, and the way we live. And so my book tells the story of the way that folks understood the obsolescing whaling industry, in particular the whale oil industry of the United States, during its obsolescence and decline in the last part of the 19th century, in the first part of the 20th century, where did all of these whaling ships and laborers and instruments and tools and stories and artifacts go when this industry might have fallen out of uh, the economic news section and out of the fortunes of uh, Mm -hmm. folks in whaling ports like New Bedford and Nantucket, Massachusetts. I want to know where those obsolete things go when they die. And so that Mm -hmm. is the story of uh, this book.
0: That's absolutely, it's just, it's so fascinating because I had never thought about the significance of the transition, right? Mm -hmm. The that, that actual, when I was reading your book, that just kind of hit me as I was reading it of like, oh, of course, we actually did totally transition to the so- sorts of energy that, you know, I'm more familiar with now as someone, you know, who was born in this era mm-hmm. of like, of course, nuclear energy and now a lot of like the discussion about new green energies, like those are the things I think of. And although, of course, I know that whaling exists, it's not something I had ever considered so significantly as like this was a big transition in what the energy world looked like.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. And and this might, I mean, piggyback too, because that's something I was struck by was, um, you know, thinking about if you could maybe describe some of the parallels that you're seeing right now, where something like. Um, you know, coal or you know other kind of natural gas, like fossil fuel kinds of things, are in many ways becoming obsolete. That there, mm-hmm. you know, there are fewer and fewer uh, coal mines. There's, uh, and so that that same kind of like all of this machinery, all of these workers, you know, where are they going? What's this this transition look like for them? And can we kind of look to the past and with the whaling industry as as part of of some of that um that journey?
2: Yeah. Thanks for that. I mean, I think that this book um, was motivated by my anxieties about fossil fuels and where we are right now, how we need to relinquish fossil fuels along with a lot of other really uh, violent extractive practices in order to address environmental justice and climate change. I mean, there's there's not really a, a choice about this. But at the same time, um, obsolescence is a choice that folks make. And I what my research really has taught me about the whale oil kind of obsolescence in the United States is uh, a little bit worrying in that we didn't stop whaling in this country because uh, folks decided that it wasn't a good idea to kill whales or to subject laborers in the whaling industry yeah, to yep. really, really dangerous practice. We decided to stop whaling because... Um, Because petroleum did a lot of the same jobs as whale oil, and it seemed a lot easier to get and a lot cheaper to produce. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really interesting and kind of sobering lesson. The energy transitions of the 19th century were not carried out on the basis of any kind of environmental or, you know, ethic. I think we all recognize that. And so we're going to have to imagine new ways of uh, thinking about energy and new ways Mm -hmm. of relinquishing and adopting new energy sources in order to enact a kind of environmental ethics. Also, I got to say, I, um, m- m- I'm growing more and more uncomfortable with the language of transition itself. Mm. Mm, and I think mm-hmm. if I were, you know, yeah. if I were, uh, uh, starting this book right now, I think I would lean a lot less heavily on that term. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. there's a really great article out right now, or actually, you know, a few years ago by Mark Simpson and Imra Zeman, uh called I think it's called impasse time, and they make the argument that there is no transition. there's just the accretion of one energy source on top of the mm-hmm. other. Nothing ever really is given up or gone away. I mean, something certainly changed in the nineteenth century, like the climactic record, the geologic record indicates mm-hmm. what happens when we started burning fossil fuels uh at scale
0: mm-hmm.
2: but um transition is kind of a a comfortable myth that we might be trying to tell ourselves about what's going on. Mm-hmm. I think. Another word I, I've started thinking about, like, relinquishment as another way of thinking about mm-hmm. what has to change in order mm-hmm. to change the kind of um, emission of of uh, fossil fuels into the atmosphere.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a really great point. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Thank you for bringing that up. I think that also just speaks to one of the sort of most wonderful things about your book, which is your attention to words and specific words and their meaning. Because, you know, as I started with your definition of render that you sort of bring up in in the book, you also talk a lot about obsolete, as we were just talking about, like this term obsolete, what does it mean? What does it look like? And transition is a word you do say quite a bit in the book as well, that I think it's like something that we maybe see as a transition, but might not really be a transition if we reconsider that word. You also sort of redefine media and modern and energy, all of these sort of terms that you have really innovative approaches to, I feel like, like bringing our attention back to what they really mean. What kind of inspired you to focus so much in on the words? Like, I I feel like now talking to you, that just seems like something that maybe you care about a lot because your idea of like, okay, (laughs) let's reconsider transition. Maybe this is something you naturally are drawn to. Is this really the importance of what words mean?
2: Yeah, well I mean I'm a textual creature, you know. <laughs> I was an indoor kid. I read a lot. Um I teach in an English department right now. Um this is the work that uh that, that I the work about words and about making strange the meanings of familiar words is is, is work that I find really important and, and really interesting and when I think when you encounter archives um, from a very different time and place, you're struck by the way that words just don't always mean the same thing. It's their very slipperiness that really interests me. And this is a work that I'm drawn to, like the work of, um, like Nicole Shukin really is uh, the animal studies scholar mm-hmm. who exploded the idea of what rendering means. And it was mm-hmm. when I encountered her work on animal capital in which she was dealing with very different, like, different kinds of processes of animal rendering and of their representation mm-hmm. in mass media and culture that I really started to think, wow, this is exactly what's happening with whaling. And mm-hmm. I think it's taking on an even different dimension when we think about it in a long array of energy transition and energy too, I think. Words like energy and media are really anachronistic when applied to the 19th century and to the sources that I'm working with. You know, no one was wandering around saying, oh, uh, you know, whale oil is a, is, is a super energy source because that, that term in, in that usage didn't exist mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with media, but really is the work of media archaeologists that got my blood racing and, 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 mm-hmm. and thinking about a different way of imagining Uh, A way of uh, describing the history of an idea that didn't yet exist. And that's kind of how I think about energy in the 19th century is this idea of energy is just coming to be. And it is consolidating into this, this term that we understand now that encompasses sources like fuel sources or energy sources like like whale oil or petroleum or solar energy or nuclear energy, which are also radically different from each other, but it kind of encompasses them and the infrastructure meant, you know, built to extract and distribute them around the world and the labor and the culture that these energy forms kind of incite. This, this, this sort of all encompassing word just didn't quite exist yet but something is happening in the 19th century that is creating a pressure for that word, a place for that word that needed to exist. And that's kind of what I'm interested in. And I think that word is really important.
1: Thank you. Um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. I think, um, just maybe for our listeners are probably like, okay, they're talking about whaling. This is a environmental humanist Why haven't they talked about Moby Dick yet? Right. So I I guess just, you know, maybe hearing a little bit about that kind of, um, you know, the way that you're reading that text that might be, um, you know, kind of bringing something new to, you know, something that is arguably maybe the most, you know, kind of, quote unquote famous studied, you know, American text, um, you know, as a piece of literary work. And so I just I'd be curious, you know, how this work that you're doing um, brings a new lens into looking at that novel.
2: You know, I I'm tempted to say like Moby Dick who I don't know her <laughs> but no that would be a cruel joke that would be a cruel joke. Um and like in fact, yeah, t- two of the of the five kind of body chapters mm-hmm. of my book are uh dedicated to Moby Dick, so I have a I have a couple things to say about it. Like every person working in American studies in the 19th century has a couple things to say about Moby Dick. I read Moby Dick as a, when it first is published in 1851 in the United States as a kind of a critique of this culture that's starting to be called energy. Mm -hmm. Like Melville is super attentive to the violence of whaling, Mm -hmm. to the, uh, to the violence of whaling on whales. I mean, his description of the murder of whales at sea is extremely um, moving and heart rending and upsetting. He's also very attentive to the violence of whaling on laborers themselves. I mean, before the novel takes us out to sea, the novel takes us to the Seaman's uh, Bethel, the kind of chapel in New Bedford, Massachusetts, where Ishmael encounters uh, the cenotaphs of sailors lost at sea in the whaling industry. So we encounter their their death before we encounter the life and work of these whalers. Mm-hmm. So... Melville's really attentive to the violence, and I think that he is, um, the the, the novel that Moby Dick is also questioning the fundamental premise of extractive capitalism, namely the kind of myth that extractive capitalism can expand and grow without limits. He's like, no, infinite growth is not possible because of these very immortal limits on the resource and the people who carry out the whaling. The cost of the resource is just Mm. too high. So I see Melville offering in a lot of different ways uh, an approach to the limits on the growth of the whaling industry. It's almost like what we would call in the 21st century, like a degrowth critique. He's sort of saying this industry can't go on. And so the kind of imperative of endless growth that is built into all capitalist enterprises will not be carried out here. And this thing is coming to an end. And I think um, Ishmael saw that end coming and kind of forecasted it in a lot of different ways. The way that Ishmael describes uh, Nantucket and the ship that he goes whaling on, uh, the Pequod, is super quaint. It's prematurely Mm -hmm. quaint if we think about the period in which the book was written. This is... um, Ishmael being kind of like a a hipster who's looking for the (laughs) cool vintage thing when he goes uh, whaling out of Nantucket. And so I think that in that representation of the whaling industry as almost already obsolete, even in 1851 at the very height of the whale oil industry, we see (laughs) Melville kind of feeling out this question, what's going to happen when all this is over? And what does it mean that people think it's not going to end? Now, Melville, you know, he's a... um, He's also deeply, deeply enmeshed in settler colonial ideology and in a kind of widespread culture of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And for all of this kind of progressive critique of extraction that I see in Moby Dick, he, there there's certain ways in which he just can't mm-hmm. feel out other kinds of critique that should be consonant mm-hmm. with the critique of extraction. Mm-hmm. So I see, um, I see Moby Dick as a kind of early instantiation of energy culture and energy mm-hmm. critique. Um, now, in the last part of my book, I think about, well, what happens when the Melville Revival happens, when folks start writing about Moby Dick as a serious work of literature, mm-hmm. when the book starts selling again and being read by a kind of really wide audience in the 19-teens and 1920s? What happens to this critique then mm-hmm. when folks are driving around in the cars and flying in planes and, you know, fossil modernity is in full swing? What mm-hmm. does that book like, look like then? And so I want to see a way to read literary history through the lens of Melville and Moby Dick as a site of environmental critique, environmental Mm -hmm. history. Um, And literary history itself isn't often sort of looked to as a way of thinking about environmental imagination. But um, Mm -hmm. I think that the case of Moby Dick in its sort of long afterlife shows us that it really is. I
0: think also, also I have a cat named (laughs) Herman Melville and I just needed Uh,
2: to to sort of put that out there.
0: (laughs) That's great. We, well, I love to talk about cats. <laughs> I was gonna say, certainly not the first time we've brought up cats on this podcast, because I have a tendency to <laughs> mention cats. Um, yeah, I think it's, I think, you know, you mentioned a lot of the, the sort of like relationship with that. Um, I want to say the capital that's related to whaling that comes up in Moby Dick, like the understanding of that connection between the capital and the, the, development of like wealth through energy, like an energy ma- manufacturing sort of process that is then at the the cost of the death of people, but also whales. And it comes at the cost of so much death. It is, I think it is interesting to reconsider that sort of where's the energy coming from? What is the cost of energy that may not be, you know, literally money all the time? Yeah. I mean, there are
2: certain costs that we just can't, bear right of energy mm-hmm. and then, like climate change is showing us in so many different ways how we just can't bear the cost of um of, of living with fossil fuels the way that we do now and mm-hmm. I say we um from my you know yes uh, perspective as a privileged fossil fuel consumer but uh yeah it's 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 not working
0: yeah I do think that so for my personal interest you know we bring up Moby Dick because that's some a touchstone people recognize but I I have to say personally I was Somewhat obsessed with your um consideration of sideshows with whale carcasses. Absolutely fascinating. Um just a, a really interesting sort of media archaeology, right? Like what was media at the time? Media was going to uh, a circus, a sideshow, interacting with entertainment in those ways. So you talk about what's they call the Prince of Wales, which for listeners who haven't read the book yet, please do read it. But because I read it, <laughs> this this, you know, stuffed, embalmed kept together giant whale carcass being carted across the country on a train. It's just absolutely, um, fascinating, but I do think it brings up a really important conversation about post-life consent, non-human bodies, the, the way we treat non-human bodies. Um, so what was it like researching that particular piece of history? I mean, it's just a, it's just a
2: wild story. Uh, you know, if I had a time machine, that might be one of the, that might be one of the trips I would take is to see the, the whale show, um, and various stages along its mm-hmm. sort of two year voyage yeah. around, around the country. Um, I will say I, I found all of the, uh, kind of archival material about the whale show and letters written to and from, um, the, the two main promoters of the show to each other. In the archives of the Mystic Seaport Museum, which is just an unbelievable archive. And I I, I just I wish uh, more folks from the environmental humanities were like looking to it as a really important place to do research and, and think about the oceans. And as a researcher in the archive, it felt like the best day in the world to open up a a box and find, you know, 200 tickets from various places of, of, you know, from the whale show and and to read these unbelievable letters. So on the one hand, it felt really exciting. But on the other hand, there's so much cognitive dissonance in that story because Mm -hmm. the violence of of whaling, the fact and the materiality of death is so clear in this story of the one whale. In some Mm -hmm. ways, it's more like viscerally felt by folks on land than all the other ways in which whale bodies are circulating as yeah. whale oil or baleen mm-hmm. or, you know whale bone or ambergris I think that that this 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 the singularity of, of of the prince of Wales just really brings home like this is a dead body um and brings mm-hmm. home the fact of this death and so it's jarring and saddening and it kind of illustrates the scale of of violence and also at the same time it's funny It's funny, like, you know, you read these, I was laughing in the archives. I mean, you read the way that the people were trying to solve this problem, like, how do we keep this thing together and not smelling so badly that we get kicked out of town in order to make more money out of it? (laughs) I mean, another kind of limit case in the absurdity of of capitalism, you know, trying (laughs) to extract as much value as possible out of this thing that is literally falling apart before everyone's eyes. And so... Yeah, that experience uh, was really just full of of a lot of emotions Mm -hmm. and really uh, has long been a kind of emotional center for for this project Mm -hmm. in its contradictions and complexities and and, and strangeness.
0: Yeah, I do think your point about it being easier for people to interact, almost like recognize more the violence of whaling in that sideshow, I think is very realistic given the fact that it's like, well, if you're not a whaler you're not the one out there because they're processing the whales on the ship, taking them apart on the ship. So probably a lot of people weren't quite aware of the entire process that was taking place with whales bodies at the time. And I do think is again, very relevant to our conversation of connecting it to to today. We don't know where our energy comes from. I turn on my computer and it does not in my brain connect to, you know, drilling oil somewhere, right? Like my, Mm -hmm. most of our connection for those of us who live in like the United States you know where we're very disconnected from the production of our energy. I think that's very realistic even today.
1: I, I was gonna just make a mm-hmm. kind of jokey comment, but I I, I love <laughs> I think like any kind of like especially really long form research project, mm-hmm. um that especially I, I you know a lot of times and we've talked about this on the show before in mm-hmm. a lot of the work that we do which can feel we can feel the weight of you know mm-hmm. of that work and of, of the seriousness of that and stuff and so. Um, I think it's great when we have those moments of, of levity or, or, you know, but also just those moments where it's like, you know, like, yeah, this, this, like, so like regardless of everything else in the book or everything else that I did, like, Mm -hmm. there's this moment that like, was just a really cool moment and made the whole thing worthwhile. Um, Mm -hmm. so it was like that, this for you, or was there something else like in the research of the book where that was just kind of like, you know, like this was like a really cool thing that like, I wouldn't have gotten to experience, had I not kind of researched this stuff?
2: Oh, wow. Um, I love researching. I love going into archives and libraries. And I I love opening the folder, not knowing what I'm going to find. Mm-hmm. I love all of that. But, but I will, you know, and I think with this project, I had to do some kind of, uh, I had to come at the topic I was trying to write about from a kind of oblique angle. You know, I wasn't researching the kind of, the, uh, a particular whaling captain in 1840 and mm-hmm. a lot of my archives were set up to accommodate those kinds of research questions like what happened on this ship at this place which is really really interesting it just wasn't what I'm thinking about I'm like well after you know after this industry stopped being profitable in your community and mm-hmm. you stopped kind of collecting records <laughs> what well, can you tell me about that strange period so <laughs> those are kind of oblique ways into the research topic that required some Really uh, generous archivists and librarians to talk things out with me and help me think about where to look and how to think about this topic. But when you know, but when I found the archive of the whale on the train, like my job was just tell this story as faithfully as possible and don't mm-hmm. screw up this beautiful thing. <laughs> you know? It's just like wow, mm-hmm. this story just is everything, and I just have to do it faithfully. <laughs>
1: Um, I have another kind of maybe random question going off script, and if <laughs> if you can't answer this one, we can totally edit it out. Not a problem at all. Um, do you do you play video games at all? Do you know video games at all? I
2: don't. I feel okay. like I should. Is there one yeah. I should play? Well,
1: so there's a series. Uh, it's called Dishonored. Uh, so there's okay. Dishonored, Dishonored Two, and then there's like a, a one small little like Dishonored: Death of the Outsider. It's kind of like a not a full sequel, but a, but an offshoot, but Um, a lot of the, so the game is set, um, in kind of a 19th vague 19th century, like European ish kind of thing. But, um, they use whale oil as like their primary source of energy, uh, through most of the first game. And, and it's very kind of, um, dirty, you know, kind of urban, uh, environments, but like the the, the interesting mechanic in the game is like, depending on the choices that you make, like. Things are kind of a little bit brighter and happier by the end of it Mm -hmm. versus, you know, dirtier and grungier and worse. Um, But an interesting thing in the second game, um, you actually travel to like a a different island um, and they use wind turbines like they've got renewable energy sources Mm -hmm. um, and they're, you know, they're, they're taking place at the same time. Um and so it was just it was just interesting and like but it's like I mean it's it's kind of steampunky in terms of like the technology that they have and stuff like that um like it's it's definitely an alternate history but it's just it's a really interesting i think fascinating look at um you know kind of challenging that that kind of historical purview of like um you know just using that kind of non-renewable resource versus something like wind. Mm But um, anyways, like, I mean, if you, if you want to comment on that, awesome. But if not, I can just edit (laughs) out all of that and you can tuck it away for future use.
2: (laughs) Okay. So I'm going to have to learn how to play video games to play that game. It sounds Mm -hmm. amazing. Um, I, 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 I've got to see this whale oil world. Um, I think, (laughs) you know, it's just another of many, many ways that whale oil is still running through our kind of energy unconscious. Mm Um, but but at the also, very
1: least, you could probably find like on YouTube someone who's oh, like like, a playthrough. done playthroughs, mm-hmm. and and you could just kind of watch it as as a first person one. So if you get kind of motion sick watching other people do things, that that's my <laughs> one one piece of caution. But
2: mm-hmm. I I gotta check that out. And like yeah, what you're saying about like energy and periodization and how. It's not as though energy resources sort of live within these like, you know, neatly contained like eras. Mm-hmm. Um, In fact, you know, I, J- Jennifer Wenzel, who's a really uh, great kind of petroculture scholar who also works on postcolonial literature, uh, set, has a, a great line about how the age of coal is also the age of solar panels is also the age mm-hmm. of dung is also the age of petroleum mm-hmm. is also the age of, Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. <laughs> sounds like it
0: sounds like this uh this game gets it. I, I appreciate mm-hmm. that.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's a game series I haven't played, Brandon, but now I might actually have to.
1: It's good. It's one of my favorites.
0: I definitely heard of I've heard of it, but I've never played it. So now I might actually have to pick it up so I can also look at this energy transition. So that actually kind of helps us move into an, another topic, which is just the importance of whaling to culture, mm-hmm. right? Not just as And energy, not just as, you know, I think, I think that's, your book brings up a lot of different ways in which whaling is important. You know, it's important to energy history, like people who work in the energy humanities. It's important to animal studies, the people who care about the animal, like what was the animal experience here? What was our relationship with animals? But it's also really important, as you point out, to culture, right? To media and like what culture is Um, for Americans, especially, but probably lots of places, you know, have whaling culture that they interact with. So what, you know, this game, Brandon brought up a great example, video game that's still interacting with whaling all these years later. What other sort of examples did you find or are you interested in which there's an enmeshment between whaling and American culture that continues now where we keep seeing this, the legacy, you know, what isn't obsolete about whaling, right? Like what did whaling continue to do for American culture?
2: Yeah, no, thanks for that question. So, I think it's really important just to say that the whaling that I write about in my book is a very particular kind of instantiation of, of, of whaling writ large. Um, I write about, you know, deep water, 19th century whaling carried out primarily to produce oil on wooden sailing ships uh, coming from New England ports Um Like that all by itself was a really big and important cultural force, but there are so many other kinds of whaling. I think that um, one way in which whaling, you know, continues to be and has been important in ways that aren't really in my book uh, Mm -hmm. have to do with the way that global whaling, like whaling as an industry Mm -hmm. throughout the rest of the world expanded after it kind of Mm -hmm. died out in the United States, probably because the U.S. didn't really need the same kind of source of animal protein that other big whaling nations like the UK and mm. Norway really did um, because of our kind of the, the animal capital uh, mm. available through industrial agriculture all mm-hmm. uh, across the U uh, S continent. But I I think that it was the kind of massive expansion of whaling and the real existential um, threat to, to whales that industrial whaling in the 20th century uh kind of brought about this really drove the kind of environmentalist movement or a certain kind of part of the Mm -hmm. environmentalist movement in the 1960s and 70s that galvanized around saving the whales. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's another important issue. And also... There's another kind of whaling that isn't obsolete and that never was obsolete and that was never carried out on an industrial scale. Mm -hmm. And that's indigenous whaling, you know, whaling for subsistence, whaling for Mm -hmm. cultural preservation that is carried out by, you know, tons of indigenous folks all around the world and including Mm -hmm. here in the U.S., especially Mm -hmm. in the Northwest Mm -hmm. and in the Arctic Mm -hmm. regions uh, among the Inupiaq and other kind of whaling cultures in the North and you know, folks up north are still whaling for food, for culture. Uh they're still learning um how to whale. And I think that it's important just to kind of state that not all whaling practices are obsolete. Um mm-hmm. And this sort of practice of indigenous whaling and its sustainability is something that needs to be really underscored and underlined whenever we talk mm-hmm. about, about whaling. It's not always this unsustainable, violent practice. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, whaling in a lot of indigenous cultures is thought to be a very reciprocal kind of exchange of energy between whales and humans. And that's a very, very different way of conceiving of whaling than the types of kind of settler practices that I document in this book. mm
0: mm-hmm. Thank you so much for pointing that out. That's a very important thing to remind people of. Again, the the lack of a transition, the con- constant existence of mm-hmm. everything on the same plane, <laughs> I think is is a really important thing that's come out of today's conversation for sure. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, well, I think I mean, um, unless was there anything else that you kind of maybe wanted to share about your work that you know didn't come up in one of the questions before we kind of move to uh, end on the roll.
2: Mm. You all asked amazing questions. Um, <laughs> I, I, I could you. I could talk to you all day. Um, <laughs> I I got to talk about the whale on the train. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh. We talked about some energy. Love we talked about some media archaeology. I, mm-hmm. I I think. I think we're good. Okay. <laughs> I awesome. mean, I could talk about this all day, but I, I think I think that covers the the high notes.
1: <laughs> cool, awesome. Well, let's go to okay. end on a roll. Um, so I don't have a die in my hand uh, today, but Lindsay does, um, thankfully. Um, so Lindsay's going to give that die a roll, and uh, it's a twelve sided okay. die. We've got twelve questions here, and um, whichever one comes up, that's the one that we're going to ask you today. So Lindsay, whenever you're ready.
0: All right, let's go for it
1: it made it to the floor it looks it, like
0: it's a, four. <laughs> it's, a four.
1: it's a four it's a four okay yes. so uh what are you watching i guess watching right now because you said you don't really play i guess or you could be a board gamer i don't want to make assumptions mm-hmm. um but yeah what are you watching right now or recently so something maybe interesting or and this doesn't even have to be academic it could just be mm-hmm. a really cool thing that you're enjoying in your free time that you think other people might enjoy so yeah
2: Oh, I I just finished watching Sex Education on Netflix. Okay. Um, it's this show with the divine Gillian Anderson. <laughs> um, and I don't know. Have, have you all seen it?
1: I've seen it like pop up on Netflix, but mm-hmm. I've never watched it.
0: Uh, yeah, well, I've heard about it.
2: It's this it's 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 a utopian show. It's a utopia about what a world would look like if people really knew how to talk to each other about their relationships mm. with each other. And it is mm. it is just a happy place to put my brain for a little wow. while. Um mm-hmm. and I'm also kind of always watching Below Deck, the Bravo Reality TV mm. series. Mm. It's um it's a it's about uh Living and working on these luxury yachts, and each uh, season follows a particular crew, the deck crew and the stewardesses, stewardesses in the inside crew, and also the charter guests who charter these ridiculous yachts, and I don't know um <laughs> maritime culture in the 21st century and the exorcist of capitalism <laughs> this is just the perfect show to think about all those things and it's salacious and delicious and i highly recommend it awesome cool. well,
0: two, thank you so two, much for those recommendations Yeah, two very good ones there <laughs> i in a shoot offshoot question do you like sailing oh i <laughs> so i grew up in the midwest um <laughs>
2: I grew up far from the ocean, and a lot of folks ask, especially people who live on the coast, ask me, like, why are Mm -hmm. you writing about this coastal oceanic (laughs) thing? And it's like, well, because the ocean was the most interesting thing in the world to a kid growing Mm -hmm. up in the Mm landlocked Midwest. I mean, there's, like, nothing more interesting. Um, So I learned how to sail a little bit, and I could probably survive on a small sailing boat Um, but I don't have a lot of opportunities to sail and would like to learn how to sail more. I, I love it and I would love to spend more time at it, but I, I learned how to sail at this place called community boating in Boston, which is Mm -hmm. like the YMCA of the sailing world, um, Mm -hmm. with a really kind of accessible, um, kind of fee structure and folks teaching each other how to sail and supporting each other. And, that's the kind of place where I want to sail and where yes. I could sail. So yeah, no luxury Yes. for me, thank you. No, oh,
0: that's and that's an excellent point. Sailing continues to be a highly capitalist and uh, privileged activity yeah. <laughs> in, in America. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so but it's it's great that you've gotten to do some of it. Yeah. Hopefully, you don't get too seasick. A <laughs>
2: little bit, a little bit.
0: <laughs> I, I do. I do too. <laughs> But you know, I was,
2: I was so relieved when Melody Jew was on the podcast, Yes, you know, this accomplished diver Do you hear mm-hmm. that she gets seasick too. I felt a sense yes. of real, uh, <laughs> yes,
0: yeah. you know, the, the water moves around a lot. <laughs> it's hard not to. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jamie. It has been wonderful to talk to you. And hear all about your work. How can people find more out about you, about your work? You know, if you have social media or a website or just an email you're willing to share that people can contact you or find out more about what you're doing? Yeah, thank you so much.
2: I would welcome further conversations about this work. Uh, my email address is uh, jaljones at illinois.edu. And I'm on Twitter. Uh, my name is Jamie L. Jones eight, like the number eight mm-hmm. um, and on blue sky as well. And at least, at least for the moment I'm on these social media platforms. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll see how they go, but I would love to reach out to folks and I really appreciate it.
1: Okay. Awesome. Cool. Well, we'll get that posted on the show notes as well as a link to, uh, to the book and and all that so that people can find you. So um, yeah, well, yeah. And uh my thanks to you as well. This has been a really fun episode. Um, and thanks to you all for listening. Uh, if you have an idea for an episode, you can get a hold of us on our Twitter, which is asley underscore ecocast. Uh, you can also find us on our Gmail asley.ecocast at gmail.com. And then our Twitter also has a link to the uh, link tree, uh, which has like the Google form and our email, all those kinds of things linked in there. So you can send us your ideas.
0: If you enjoy listening to EcoCast, you can help us reach a larger audience by liking, sharing, tweeting, other social media about today's show. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.